0: This podcast has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded.
1: Okay, can we start that again?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry. <clears throat> I feel like that's relaxed, everyone, mm. now that
1: you've it up. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking the Podcast. All right, I'm ready. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking the Podcast. I'm Sophia Barrett, and today I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Eleanor Wilson. How are you, Elle? I'm very well, Sophia. I'm
3: super excited for today's show. We're going to be having some very interesting conversations today about representation in the media, who's being represented fairly, who's not, and how we as journalists
1: can be more considerate. We've got so many great topics to talk about, so thanks for listening in. To kick things off, we'll be welcoming Meg DeYoung and Lily Graydon, who will be talking to us about mental health representation in the media. We do have a content warning for this segment, as certain subjects will be discussed, such as suicide, which may be triggering.
3: Yes, well, welcome to the podcast, girls. How are you both? Yeah,
2: good, thank you. How are you?
3: Good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. Now, obviously, um, mental health is quite a sensitive topic for many people, uh, but it's also quite prevalent in our society. Uh, What role does journalism play when it comes to reporting on mental health?
2: Yeah, the reporting of mental health really does play an important role in informing society. Journalism has the power to impact positively or negatively on this. And journalists need to tell these stories because it can aid in the deconstruction of stigma and the negative stereotypes that sometimes unfortunately surround mental health.
1: So would you say it's in the public interest
2: to report on mental health? Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. That being said, it's imperative that journalists report ethically on mental health, um, stating things like mental health is incurable and coming in with inaccurate facts and statistics can reinforce common myths and stereotypes.
3: Right. So what would you say are important ethical factors to consider when reporting on stories that feature mental health?
2: Yeah, well, ethical journalists report about mental health. They have to be responsible and accurate to help the community better understand the experience of mental illness. Uh, They should encourage help seeking behavior by doing things like including additional information such as helpline numbers, websites, support services, and often feature perspectives of people who aren't exposed to it. So that can include the carers, the mental health workers and the organisations in the mental health circuit. And this can give accurate information about mental illness and specific mental disorders.
1: Mm, I'll hand it over to Meg as well. Meg, is it ethical to report on stories of suicide?
2: Yeah, so it's
4: actually a myth that suicide shouldn't be reported on and responsible reporting of suicide can actually reduce the statistics.
3: Okay, can you give us an example of when that happened?
4: So back in 1997, when Kurt Cobain, who was the famous member um, of the band Nirvana, he died from suicide and an Australian study found that rates of suicide among 15 to 24 year olds declined the month following his death.
1: That's really interesting. So what should journalists be doing when when reporting stories of suicide in the media?
4: So it's really important that journalists are responsible with the facts they report, Um, Journalists should also exclude details about method and location of suicide. Also not uh, representing it in a sensational or glamorised way is really important. And all reporters should just aim to discuss the issue respectfully.
3: Certainly. And have you found that celebrity culture has influenced mental health being reported in mainstream media? Well, in recent years, we've actually seen a shift in the way people are viewing and talking about mental
4: health. So conversations about anxiety, depression and addiction have moved from the private to the public sphere, which is really fantastic. According to mental health experts, public figures opening up about their struggles can help break down the stigma.
1: Can you give us some examples of celebrities opening up to the public about their mental health struggles? So Chrissy Teigen
4: is a pretty well-known case. Um, She, of course, is the presenter and public personality in America, married to John Legend. And after the birth of her daughter, she talked about her experience with postpartum depression. This story was picked up and reported on by multiple news outlets, and her openness was really celebrated. Demi Lovato is another example. The singer has detailed her journey of addiction, anorexia and bipolar. Um, The Rock has opened up about having depression in his early 20s. And the actress Kristen Bell has been really candid talking about her use of medications to help with her anxiety and
3: depression as well. So, Lily, what tools can journalists use to report on mental
2: illness correctly? Yeah, there's heaps of resources out there for new journalists who want to know a little more uh, things like Mindframe is a super helpful organisation that focuses on the rightful reporting of mental health. They also provide a lot of data and statistics that can give context and insight. Another great one actually um, for awareness and assistance is the Black Dog Institute. But for the budding journalists, like, it's always safe to go with the MEAA. That's a great place to look for reporting guidelines.
4: And for anyone listening who is struggling, you can reach uh, Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au or you can call Lifeline on 13 1114 and just know you're not alone and to check in on your friends as well.
1: Thanks so much for that brilliant and very relevant insight. That was Meg De Jong and Lily Graydon. Following on from this, we now have a story from John Moyle on his experience of mental health representation in Australian courts.
3: John has been researching the way personality disorders affect sentencing and the problems facing those with this diagnosis. Research done by SANE Australia has said approximately 6.5% of Australian adults meet diagnostic criteria for at least one personality disorder. John's story looks at the potential problems these people may face in a criminal trial.
5: I'm at the trial of a young woman who has been convicted of arson. She sits behind me, separated from the rest of the court by a low rail, She's been in and out of juvenile detention because she is a fire starter, as the courts say. In the past, she burned down a supermarket. Photos of the scene show a charred building full of bent trolleys and shelves. She also set fire to her old home, which back then was a vacant lot. The court is trying to figure out her sentence, which for reasons I'm about to explain, is made amazingly complex when it becomes known she has a personality disorder. If you commit a crime, at that time you're experiencing some kind of mental illness... Would you expect that to be considered in court? When you've been sentenced, would you hope that your mental health is taken into consideration? That is essentially what this story is about, because the person sitting behind me has a history of mental health issues, but at this stage the Australian courts' personality disorders aren't recognised in sentencing. This is important because when someone has a mental health consideration, the right type of sentence is profoundly important to get right. It's a difference between punishment and rehabilitation, In this case, the defendant has a history of self-harm. Normally I wouldn't mention this, but the court is worried about it. Her lawyer says she is unfairly stuck in the long history of how the court has seen personality disorders. The judge agrees, describing the current state of sentencing as widespread consternation. This confusion does have a long history, but to put it briefly as possible, the legal system is having a hard time understanding what a personality disorder is, how serious it can be, and how it can affect someone's choices. Historically, when the court looks for mental illness, it has prioritized diagnosable brain diseases, like schizophrenia, for example. Dr. Evan Freckleton, QC, wrote this is because personality disorders have symptoms more subtle than fluid delusions and hallucinations. This means that personality disorders are much harder to understand because they are more subtle. But more subtle doesn't mean less serious. They are harder to see because, unlike brain diseases, personality disorders exist in relation to normal traits, This means that seeing this illness requires an understanding of when and how someone's personality becomes a disorder. It means the court needs to be able to interpret the hazy margins of when our idiosyncrasies, our personal traits, become illness, when they become something we can't control. What all this means is that although experts in health and law say these disorders affect the way people act, Australian courts aren't treating them like that. What does this mean for people in criminal cases diagnosed with the disorder? In short, that their punishments might not address the reasons they committed the crime, and what's more, their punishments might actually make their mental health worse. Right now, the court case i is still ongoing. No one is sure what will happen yet, whether her acts of arson will be relatable to her mental health. The court knows that she is in need of care, of something that addresses her mental health, and what's amazing to see is both the judge and lawyer are trying really hard to make sure she gets it, but as they try, they wade the confusion currently surrounding people like her.
1: Next up, we welcome Ned O'Brien to the podcast, and you are going to be chatting to us about all things sports, well, specifically ex-athletes who have made the jump from sports to commentary.
3: Ned, welcome. How are you today?
0: Not too bad, girls. How are you?
1: Good,
3: thank you. Now, being a sports commentator is certainly not an easy feat for anyone, and journalists can spend their whole careers trying to get a gig in the field. How do ex-athletes fare when it comes to commentating? Are they popular among viewers?
0: Uh, well, from the people I spoke to and uh, asked as part of a survey, um, it differs. There are some people or journalists and media personalities who are quite popular, while there are others who people would just disappear off their TV screens and from their airwaves. Uh, some former athletes you know, take their profession quite seriously and enjoy their work, while there are others who seem content to do the bare minimum and continually get away with doing so.
1: What do people like and dislike?
0: Uh, For example, the viewers are very out on Channel 7's special comments commentator for the football, Cameron Ling. Um, People said he seems to reiterate what happened, pointing out all the obvious aspects which the viewer would have already picked up. And there also seems to be a reliance, especially in the football and basketball world, where raw counting stats are used to emphasise or back up a point. But nowadays the sport is moving into the age of analytics where uh, more advanced metrics give a better indication of a player's ability.
3: And does this differ from sport to sport?
0: Yeah, it does, for sure. And I'd say even from broadcast to broadcast, it differs. With cricket, as an example, Shane Warne on um, Channel 7 is often quite over the top and trying to dominate conversation and dictate terms, while ABC Grandstand has always been a station that's rated highly during the summer. And it's mainly because their personality, whether it's just their personalities or their training. Uh, former test openers Chris Rogers and Ed Cowan, who are a part of the team, um, provide relevant insight into the game, but let the voice of summer of cricket, Jim Maxwell, handle the ball-by-ball commentary, or inviting his guests to um, providing the relevant questions for his guests, and then in the NBA, all 30 teams have a localised broadcast, so um, predominantly the two broadcasters for each uh, market are beloved by their fan base, and a majority of teams use a former player as the colour commentator, and allow allows them to just give the insight rather than handle the play-by-play. Uh, and An example would be the team that I go for, the Knicks. Um, their lead broadcaster is Mike Breen, and he commentates the nationally televised games on ESPN, he does the playoffs, the finals, um, and he's been quite successful, but he also does the local market. While the colour commentator is Walt Clyde Frazier, who won two championships with the team, and... Um, He has quirky rhymes such as shaking and baking and styling and profiling, while viewers always hold a fascination as to which suit he will wear as his fashion sense is uh, out of this world.
1: (laughs) And who have been some success stories that you can tell us about?
0: Uh, Someone like David King from Fox Footy, and also he writes in the paper as well, has made a seamless transition into the media. He's done it both, as I said, on TV and in the print. Although his writing could do with some work, Mm -hmm. he's concise to the point and uses the relevant information and analytics to express and back up his opinion. And then over in the States, in the NFL, uh, former Dallas Cowboys quarterback Tony Romo has instantaneously become a fan favourite, actually. For his inside of, he's able to break down the defence, their positioning on the field, what they're scheming to do, and then as a result, he's actually been quite successful in um, predicting the future and being able to figure out what, off, what play the offence will run next time.
3: Yeah, definitely uh, some great athletes in that list. Uh, contrastingly, are there any athletes who've tried their luck with sports journalism uh, but haven't experienced the same level of success?
0: Or just generally, in back to the NBA, Turner Sports, who nationally televised four to five games per week, one of their nights, one of their two nights was dedicated to a segment or a broadcast called Players Only. Um, it was a good idea in theory, but in practice it was quite disastrous. There was no lead commentator and majority of their careers they'd just been the colour commentators um, and they hadn't been trained and it sounded just like a video game. There was no continuity in the broadcast and often there were long silences where you wouldn't want them and then it was quite a dull atmosphere and actually it was just canned a few months ago um, ahead of this season.
1: That's so interesting. So do you know what it is that viewers would like to see improved?
0: Uh, The top answers I received from the survey was training, the sense of entitlement and the formality. Uh, Players can often be employed right after their career has ended and without any prior training or experiences. Viewers said there seems to be a sense of entitlement where they feel their opinion is more valid because they played the game and they don't believe they could ever be wrong. But um, as is the case with everything, the game and the sport changes. It's constantly evolving. What was correct a decade ago isn't necessarily the same right now. And the formality was something I found to be quite interesting People seem to be fed up with the overuse of the slang. The top culprits in the category were Shane Warne and Cameron Ling, the use of I reckon, bloody, ain't and Shane Warne's inability to pronounce Australia as Australia and constantly referring to players as the boys, lads, gents and the overuse of nicknames too, which the broadcasters themselves can be guilty of, especially Bruce McAvaney on Channel 7. And, you know, it's a professional broadcast and people want, you know, a professional, professionally done job, not the lads shooting the expletive at the pub.
3: <laughs> Certainly, I agree. Thank you so much for that insight. That was Ned O'Brien uh, talking about ex-athletes in the media.
1: You know what, Eleanor, I was just having a think there and I feel as though when I think of sports commentators, I don't really hear any female voices popping up.
3: Yeah, that's actually very true, Sophia. I mean, you've obviously got Hear Sally Pearson a bit, sometimes Sam Stoza, but I'd certainly say it's more of a male dominated field. In fact, I think I'd go as far to say that journalism in general has quite a strong male presence.
1: Mm, Well, are Eleanor Eleanor and I correct, or are we imagining this gender disparity in media? Cherie Rattan has more.
6: There is a sense among Australians that journalism is biased when it comes to gender. Indeed, even in 2019, White men dominate the screen. In his 2016 article, A Balanced Media, Not When It Comes to Gender, Gavin Morris says, A media that primarily talks to people like me simply does not accurately reflect the world any of us live in. It's unrepresentative, it's inaccurate, and it's boring. It may not be a surprise that women still have a long way to go in Australia. Women still don't get paid as much as men and they are often stereotyped as being fit only for motherhood and staying at home. As in the journalism industry, while news organisations are increasingly employing more women, those who are interviewed are mostly males. There are more women than men studying journalism and gaining employment, but very few make it to senior jobs. In 2012, studies have shown that both US and UK newspapers had very few women employees, particularly in the areas of hard news, crime and politics. Journalism in social media had seen similar results. A 2019 study from the Pew Research Centre found that men appear more than women in news images on Facebook in both individuals and in groups. For news images consisting of people only, 53% were exclusively men. The 2013 Women in Media report by Women's Leadership Institute Australia had found 80% of news commentators were male. In addition, an Auckland University of Technology study of New Zealand's 2014 election coverage found that roughly a quarter of sources used were female. In April 2019, Andrea Papuk wrote an article for Bloomberg titled There are far too few women's voices in Australian media, report finds. In the article, Papouk says that while women make up a small percentage of sources for digital news media, women are also underrepresented in opinion pieces and columns. Women journalists are more likely than male journalists to experience threat and harassment whenever they are working in a newsroom or at an outside location. In some extreme cases, female journalists have been assaulted or even murdered and it is usually not in war zone areas. So what can we do to assure equal and fair gender representation in journalism? Gavin Morris says, Making ourselves publicly accountable is a necessary step to achieving change and becoming a relevant media organisation that truly represents all Australians. This fundamental approach has been worked on in various news organisations on a nationwide scale. ABC News is working on creating greater diversity To accurately reflect the population, more female journalists has become vocal about their under-representation in employment and image. Male journalists are also acknowledging the struggle, particularly with the wage gap. Indeed, as news organisations address the under-representation of female journalists as an internal issue, then it can be worked on from the inside out by changing society rules and expectations.
3: Certainly some very interesting discourse on gender representation there. Thank you, Cherie.
1: Yes, well, as we know, L in today's society, gender is not constrained to just be male and female. You're certainly right there, Sophia.
3: There are an array of different genders on the spectrum and pronouns to match. But is this recognised in the media? And to what extent should journalists go to ensure that they are respecting gender in our modern world? Well, we have the lovely Brie McRae and Simone Itiv
1: with us now to tell us a bit more. Welcome, Simone.
7: Thanks for having me. And Brie. Hey, guys. Good to be here.
1: So gender pronouns in journalism is quite an interesting topic.
7: Yes, it's certainly a uh, topic not talked much about in the realm of journalism. I believe it's important as journalists to keep up with the ever-changing world and now becoming more aware about the LGBTQI community. I think it's time for us journalists to question whether we are being too exclusive and not inclusive enough.
8: Yeah, I agree. Simone and I want to talk about how journalists represent individuals and their preferred pronouns, especially those who identify as non-binary, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, transgender and queer. We can see the case with Sam Smith.
7: So recently, Sam Smith has asked their fans to use the they and them pronouns instead of him and he after coming out as non-binary. So Smith wrote, I understand there will be many mistakes and misgendering, but all I ask is you please, please try. I hope you can see me like I see myself now. Thank you.
8: Smith took a brave step on behalf of themselves and the queer community, and many supportive fans praised and respected them for it, but some didn't. The Associated Press, a news agency in New York City, published an article about Smith shortly after they came out as non-binary. The article followed Smith through the process of of embracing their gender. However, they used he and him pronouns through the whole thing. So the AP was obviously met with a lot of backlash, with many recognising how ignorant it was. And they weren't the only ones. British political commentator Douglas Murray misgendered Smith in his article for The Telegraph, referring to them as he, him throughout. Also, an article in The Sun, misgendered Smith in the first line. So fans immediately called them out. In an interview for Vice, a bunch of non-binary people talked about how being misgendered is quote-unquote uncomfortable and and invalidating, and it makes them feel unseen and disregarded. One explained that it made them feel as though my identity is a joke to them, frustrated, angry and small, invisible and disrespected. So clearly there's no excuse for us to mess this up, especially when it has such an awful effect on an already marginalised community.
3: Yeah, that's really terrible and certainly disappointing that people mistended them like that. As journalists, uh, how can we make sure we're using the correct pronouns for a person?
8: Well, honestly, it seems so simple, but I think all we need to do is ask. A simple what's your name, what gender pronoun would you like to use is all you really need. Yeah, we need to ensure
7: as journalists we are being as respectful and inclusive as possible.
1: Mm. Should we ask every person though or should we only ask when we're working on a queer story or speaking to someone who we may
8: think are queer? Yeah, well the, the thing is it could be problematic trying to determine who is queer and therefore worth asking and who is not.
7: Yeah, exactly. It's best to ask everyone. A great rule of thumb when starting any interview. And why do you think that it's hard for some people to use the pronouns someone identifies with? Well, for many journalists, it's grammatical correctness, uh, finding out ways on how we can use non-binary pronouns like they and them to make uh, sense in our writing and reporting. However, major dictionaries have recognised singular they as grammatically correct for years, including the Oxford English Dictionary, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and dictionary.com the AP style book allows for singular they in cases where a person does not identify cases where a person
1: oh shit Sorry. yeah yeah it doesn't <laughs> sort of identify as as male yeah so yeah, the,
7: yeah so the AP Stylebook book allows for singular they in cases where a person does not identify as male or female. In 2015, the American Dialect Society voted for they, used as a gender-neutral singular pronoun as the word of the year. And I feel like uh, another one, uh, another thing could be the challenge for older journalists who are not fully aware of what pronouns are or even how to use them and what it means to the queer community to have these pronouns. It's like the debate in journal- journalism between full disclosure versus due no harm. Uh, How do we find a middle ground? Do we as journalists keep to our traditions or strive for public inclusivity?
8: Yeah, I agree. Like our primary teachers told us in school that they meant more than one person while he, she was singular, right? Getting past the habit of it takes a conscious effort, I guess.
1: Mm, And can you tell us a bit about what journalists are doing today to be inclusive? Only a few media outlets have actually adopted the AP Style book,
7: which instructs reporters to use pronouns that uh, correspond with a person's preferred gender identity or if it's not specified one that is consistent with the way individuals live publicly as stated in the AP style book. So online digital news outlets have already started adopting non-binary pronouns such as the New York Times and BBC. Uh, Glad Media is also another one of them known for being at the forefront of cultural change and focus on LGBTQI acceptance. Its statement Glad tackles tough issues to shape the narrative and provoke dialogue that leads to cultural change. For journalists to be inclusive of the LGBTQI community, we need to at least try to use their gender pronouns. Although it may be hard at first, it's about integrity, doing the right thing when no one's watching.
8: Exactly. And I think the most important thing to recognise is our role and responsibility as journalists. We all know the role media plays today. It's on our phones, in our hands, in our ears, in our conversations. It quite literally surrounds us. So the media can be a very telling measure of the values and thoughts that dominate our society at any given time, right? Like a quick look at the media from the 1950s tells us a lot about how people thought at the time, for example. So if one person who doesn't respect the queer community is broadcast on live television, not only does that person appear ignorant, the company looks bad, the broader community suffers and it has the potential to cast an untrue reflection of how people think today. As journalists, we speak on behalf of an informed society and it's our responsibility to uphold their values.
7: So we're proposing a credential module on LGBTQI language. It can be um, introduced as a small badge offered at universities across all disciplines, not just journalism, um, courses. In addition, media outlets can provide this credential for older journalists to take. The credential can include uh, the basic terminology, questions to ask a talent, as we mentioned earlier, what pr- pronouns do you use? Mention you as the journalist, your name and pronouns. For so example, I would say, hi my name is Simone Tev and the pronouns I use is are he- are she and her. The rule of not just asking the question to just transgender and gender non-conforming people, ensure to ask the talent and everyone on the team. It's fine to make mistakes. It's something that is so new and it may not, may be hard to remember. If you do use the wrong pronouns, quickly apologize and move on. The worst thing is making a big deal out of it and making the atmosphere really uncomfortable.
8: Yeah, and it's something that can work if all journalists and media outlets are willing to. As Simone mentioned earlier, glad media has already done it. They already produced a media guide on queer community language as well as releasing supports, re- as well as releasing reports on their research on the acceptance of queer people in the media.: Yeah, so it's
7: all about having an inclusive tone. The future is inclusive.
8: Like our society is catching up. We're progressing. We're well on our way to becoming a highly inclusive society, and as journalists, it's up to us to reflect that.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much. The future certainly is inclusive and you've given us a lot of improvements uh, for journalists to think about on how we can uh, progress as a society in the future.
3: Yes, certainly. Thank you so much. Uh, There's, as you said, Sophia, there's certainly many considerations both current and emerging journalists should be making when it comes to respecting minority groups. But unfortunately, it's not just LGBTQI folk who are being misrepresented.
1: We now welcome the wonderful Michaela Tor in the studio with us. How are you, Michaela?
9: I'm great. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. You've been exploring the idea of how minority groups are represented in the media. What have you found?
9: Yes, so essentially I wanted to investigate the role that media plays in marginalising minority groups within society. And um, while I was researching, I found that while representation of varying cultures has certainly improved, there is still a long way to go in ceasing the pejorative depictions of minority groups, particularly within commercial media channels. (laughs) Okay, so you say that there's a long way to go. What do you mean by this? Well, we are living in a time of progress, but this is obviously far from perfection. Uh, Certain media organisations have appropriate representation written into their charters. So ABC states that one of its functions is to broadcast programs that contribute to a sense of national identity and inform and entertain and reflect the cultural diversity of the Australian community. Now SBS also has a charter that states that its primary function is to provide multilingual and multicultural radio, television and digital media services that inform, educate and entertain all Australians and in doing so reflect Australia's multicultural society. But unfortunately the ma- the major uh, yeah yeah skip But, unfortunately, the major commercial channels still have a long way to go. So I found an editorial review that was conducted in March 2018. And basically what they did was analyse the diversity of broadcast news stories on the different networks. So ABC and SBS favoured stories on politics and international politics, respectively, but 7, 9 and 10 covered stories about crime at a much higher rate. And in the case of Channel 9... Uh, crime was their most commonly covered type of story. So this is obviously problematic as crime is often disproportionately associated with members of minority groups.
1: Mm, That's really interesting. So commercial networks are representing crime at a much higher rate than ABC or SBS. But how else are minorities being depicted?
9: Well, crime is obviously just one element. So there have been a number of recent high-profile pejorative representations of a particular minority group. Okay, can you go into those a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. In two thousand and eighteen in Victoria, there was an uproar about the reporting of African gangs in the media. Uh, there was a furor that arose around African violence in Melbourne's West, particularly those of Sudanese descent, and this led to a sudden uh, and this led to a sudden increase in anger towards the Sudanese community, much of which was covered by the media. For a time, this coverage was so pervasive that a county court judge by the name of Peter Kidd actually spoke out against the media, stating that the reporting on so-called African gangs was both skewed and dangerous. He essentially called out the media for choosing to selectively report on cases involving someone of African descent. He went so far as to say, if you are an African offender, and certainly if you're an African youth of South Sudanese background from the western suburbs of Melbourne, Rest assured, your case will be reported upon. This is a fairly damning indictment of the media's bias.
1: Mm, I remember that well. And can you tell us a bit more about how else the media represents minority groups?
9: Sure. Well, another broader issue is the depiction of Islam in the media. Since the uh, infamous 2001 September 11 attacks, there has been a negative bias in the media's representation of Islam. And it has been argued that this has fueled hatred and even violence towards people of Muslim faith. In 2014, the Daily Telegraph linked the perpetrator of the Lindt Café siege in Sydney with ISIS, and this was in fact later dispelled by terrorism experts. The problem of linking ISIS terrorism and the Islamic faith is endemic and inaccurate, as protested by countless experts on Islam. In fact, the Muslim media company, One Path Network, found that in a single year, Australian papers owned by Rupert Murdoch produced 2,891 stories, quote unquote, trashing Islam. Wow, it's a very high number. It is, especially when it only reflects the content of five newspapers. So, Michaela, where do we go from here? Well, as I mentioned, we are living in progressive times. I think it is very important that journalists like you and I view our ethical responsibilities as being of paramount importance and remember that impartiality is a fundamental part of the job. Uh, There have also been arguments made regarding the inverse correlation between impartiality and profit motives. So perhaps this is something that needs to be further examined by members of the Fourth Estate.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Michaela. That was Michaela Tor with the representation of minority groups in commercial media. We're now joined by Chisa Hasegawa and Willem van Denderen to talk about the difference between asylum seekers and refugees and how they're represented in the media. Welcome to you both.
3: Uh, So you wanted to discuss the importance of using correct terminology, particularly concerning the issue of people movement?
10: Correct. So as young journalists breaking into the field, we feel it's important to be precise with terminology and definitions, even if people in the public are not always aware of the meanings. The concept of people movement and displacement has gripped the planet in some capacity for generations and continues to feature in political discourse here in Australia. Despite this, terms such as refugee and asylum seeker are frequently thrown around without great understanding of their meaning and are often wrongly used interchangeably. While the topic is similar, the two do mean different things and it's important to make a distinction.
1: So what is the definition of an asylum seeker? So, according to the
11: Amersity International, an asylum seeker is a person seeking international protection in a country other than their own. So, they're a person in the process of having their application heard, having left their own country for a given reason. They're not, however, recognised as a refugee. Okay, and so then how does one qualify as a refugee? So a refugee is someone that has been recognised under the 1951 United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees. To be considered as such, they must be outside of their home country due to a well-founded and legitimate fear of persecution and be unwilling or unable to return.
10: So essentially a refugee is someone whose situation is dire and has been recognised as such, while an asylum seeker may not be under such duress, but may simply be seeking a new or better life.
1: So there are people in Australia who sometimes declare or describe asylum seekers and refugees as illegal immigrants. Are they, in fact, breaking the law?
10: Yeah, so many people have in the past arrived on our shores without a valid visa or through the official channels, leading to the idea that they are unlawful. But under that same 1951 Convention and in the 1948 UN Convention of Human Rights, uh, everyone has the right to seek asylum. Also, everyone has the right to leave a country and seek refuge and may not have the time to do so officially. So a refugee cannot be penalised just for arriving on Australian shores without a visa, as, it is in, as it's their right to do so.
11: Yeah, so if a person flees a civil war in Africa or Syria, they're of course not going to have the time to sort out official paperwork. So that's where we think the media representation of these people as illegal is extremely disappointing. The demonisation narrative around people fleeing their country as job stealers or lawbreakers is a fair way off the mark.
10: Another disappointing aspect of Australia's representation of asylum seekers and refugees is them as one mass crisis, rather than being acknowledged as individual humans. The Tamil family from Wheeler has been a recently publicised case of a refugee family, and by having names and faces seen in the public, the narrative has been very different around their scenario compared to that of the many unknown cases.
3: And are there any
11: other terms you feel need to be clarified? Uh, Yeah. So the term migrant falls into the asylum seeker category as well. So that's someone who's moving to Australia or any other country officially. So an economic migrant is also often referred, which means the same thing. So while their home life is not necessarily a threat, they are still seeking better terms and so become economic migrants.
10: And finally, another term that ties in here is internally displaced people. These are those who remain within their own country, but have had to move on from their own region. One of the biggest factors in displacing a person is actually water scarcity, a massive issue, of course, in Africa. According to the CIA in the US, more than 24.5 million people in the world are internally displaced.
11: So to conclude, there are a multitude of reasons why people seek refuge in another country. And we feel the flippant media coverage doesn't really help the situation at all. Especially in Australia, which is a country with a long migrant history, it's disappointing that this is still an issue and it's crucial that we educate the people on the correct terminologies. Certainly. Well, thanks so much for joining us. That was Chisa
3: Hasegawa and Willem van Denderen talking to us about guidelines surrounding refugees and asylum seekers.
1: So now we know a little bit more about minority representation in Australian media, but how does this extend to our First Nations people?
3: A 2018 report by Reconciliation Australia shows that 94% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians believe that they should have a say in matters that affect them. Professor Irene Watson made history more than 30 years ago in 1985 when she became the first Aboriginal person to graduate from the University of Adelaide with a law degree. She says First Nations peoples of this country have their own voice and we need to see Aboriginal voices representing themselves. Sky Mitchell has more
12: need to look at the way Aboriginal families, Aboriginal individuals, Aboriginal communities are represented in the media with regard to uh, their um, relationships to family and children. I think quite often that those media representations lead to, again, very significant um, and negative outcomes for Aboriginal peoples.
13: Irene Watson is the author of Aboriginal Peoples, Colonialism and International Law, Raw Law, a widely studied text which explores Aboriginal ways of being and the incompatibilities with the dominant structure of Western culture. She recalls the Northern Territory intervention in 2007.
12: I think a a moment in time that we could reflect on and go back to as, as students, I think, could go back to 2007 and the lead up and the years that led up to the Northern Territory intervention. Take a take a look at the way the media represented the um, the issues that they claimed were widespread domestic violence or violence um, across Aboriginal communities, and the people's voices who were, that were heard and the voices that weren't heard, and it was. Uh, a project that had quite significant outcomes for Aboriginal peoples.
13: Chris Graham, a Walkley award-winning journalist, said that the media's coverage of the intervention in the Northern Territory was disgraceful. He said in an interview with SBS, and I quote, the media's coverage was so sensationalised, some of it was fraudulent to begin with. Much of the coverage was also biased. To be honest, it was some of the worst reporting this country has ever seen. What we write or omit as a journalist has the power to create outcomes that might not be intended or even do harm. A recent example is when AFL player Adam Goods called out a teenage fan for calling him an ape in 2013. A long-lasting booing campaign ensued. Goods made it clear that he did not hold the fan personally responsible because it was the culture she grew up in. But the media reduced Good's message to saying that the fan was, and I quote, the face of racism. That was powerful, but had devastating consequences. Brett Goods, who is Adam's brother, spoke to the media about this and said, they could have got behind what Adam was trying to do to start that conversation. Instead, it became a media frenzy, with antagonistic commentators pulling out pieces of what he said to add fuel to the fire. I asked Irene what journalists should consider when reporting on issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders.
12: I think uh, what what individual journalists need to do is take a good hard look at themselves in the mirror and, and ask that question. How, how well equipped are you? How well informed are you? What... Um, What agendas are being generated in the reporting of a particular issue or item? Um, What do I bring to that space? And how am I going to represent that? How much do I know about broader policy, um, broader political um, events that are occurring? And how well are Aboriginal people being represented in that space?
3: That was Sky Mitchell with Indigenous Australian representation in the media. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I've really
1: enjoyed myself today, Elle. Have you?
3: I definitely have too, Sophia. I feel certainly
1: uh, more ethical than I did at the start of the podcast, that's for sure. And thank you to all the wonderful journalists who we heard from today for providing us with some very vital knowledge. Certainly food for thought. For sure.
3: And thanks to you, our audience, for sticking with us. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Breaking the Podcast and learned a little bit more about our media representation and
1: our responsibility as journalists in Australia. We hope you'll join us next time. Bye for now. See ya.